Now, um, um, we didn't know who'd come tonight because we haven't done this since pre-COVID. Do you remember pre-COVID? No. <laughs> and it was, it was all slightly, um, you know, in true UK column style, organised at last minute. So firstly, thank you all for coming out on this miserable Scottish night and to spend some time with us. It really means a lot, so thank you very much. Thank you. And, and secondly, it is a tradition in Motherwell to get together and celebrate when the drought finally breaks, so... <laughs> Uh, so what I thought we'd do is we just start off with a wee bit about the column from Alex and myself, and which won't go on for very long, and we'll just say a few words, and then what we want to do is we'll open it up for an Ask Me Anything, and we'll take that up to about half past, and then we'll stop for a cup of tea. So um, when it comes to ask, ask us anything, uh, we do mean anything. If it's a really dodgy subject, or you don't want to be... Um, on, uh, recorded on film, no problem, you know, you can let us know afterwards, I want that one quiet, you can ask us anything, we'll, we'll do our best to answer. So, uh, firstly, I, I should introduce Alex, now uh, you're on the line. I should tell you when I first met Alex, I was not long on the call, and uh, they were running an event down in Telford and it was a three-day conference. So I was asked to go down, so I walked into this room. There was 300 people in the room, they all knew me. It was a very strange feeling. Um, and I'm an engineer. My engineer chums are very conservative, right? You know, they don't do radical things. I was used to being the most radical guy in the room, wherever I was, right? My family are quite quiet and, okay, my brother's a odd, but you know, mostly, I was the most radical guy in the room. I walked into this room of the UK column audience. In terms of radical ideas, I didn't make the top 250. <laughs> there was every sort of view of the world under the sun that you could possibly imagine. And at the back, right, there's a little round table where all of the Christians accumulated as the night went on. And there was Alex. So that was the first time I met Alex and we had a long and an interesting chat uh, long into the night and he's been a, he's been a good friend ever since. So um, that was the first time I met him. And he was, were you speaking of that? Uh, I wasn't officially, but in the strange way that happens to me, I probably stand up to give you a honour as well. Um, I was actually put on a panel without notice, if you recall, and partly because I was wearing a tweed jacket and partly because I knew something about the law, I was assumed to be a lawyer <laughs> on the panel by default. And I remember Field McConnell, who later went to prison, some of you will know for various uncomfortable uh, reasons, were appointed upon him. But Field said something like, I don't normally like lawyers, but I'll make an exception. <laughs> so yes, by the end of the, the weekend I was actually on the official schedule. Okay, well, so that's my introduction to Alex, who you know anyway. Um, Alex, would you like to say a few words about life on the call? Um, what's the cliche? No two days are the same? Actually, no two hours are the same. Um, 
we never in our wildest dreams imagined that we would be attracting audiences in real life. I think it's fair to say that we all started our work for the column because we felt that there was no option but to speak and write publicly about what we knew about various abuses. And it was a very, very lonely road for us before we did so. And we all had to uh, check with our other hearts that they were all right with us going public. But there may be some in the audience or watching the recording of this who also think, I could never do what those guys do. Well, that was us a decade ago, right? And you can do it. And I'm going to say this, I'm strange saying this, but you'll actually have more peace once you start than you ever did before. And you'll be losing a lot of friends along the way, but you'll be getting better ones in return, is what we often say. So what is the column? It's often called uh, a ministry by some people. It's called a news channel by other people. It's called outreach. It's called a community. Actually, all of these things apply. I think you could say that all of those things uh, are what we do. Um, we're a, a group of people who are disaffected in some way or another. Um, and yeah, well, I, the nicest compliment I got this week, actually, was that we are reliable. In fact, the person who said it to me said, unlike a lot of the alternative media, you are reliable. Yeah? So we actually document what we uh, come up against. And I don't know what it is about the UK column that makes that special, but in, in the end, you get the sense that you're actually talking straight to individual people. You know, in the early days of TV, we've come along basically with the unashamed ambition of replacing the BBC, even if it takes us a lifetime, right? And if you cast your mind back to when your granny used to watch the BBC and take it as authoritative, what do they used to say? Whether it's a newscaster or you know, an evening show, so the granny would say, I feel I know that presenter, I feel I know this. Right, and I think, isn't that fair enough to say, David, that people actually come to the same view of us, that they actually know us, and when they meet us in the flesh, they, they might say, well, you look physically bigger or smaller or whatever they might imagine, but they never come away saying, well, you're different. You know, you were putting on an act. We, we just speak as we find. And uh, that is in massive contradistinction to the media that we are attempting to replace, because they're made up of nothing other than people putting on an act, and people being instructed to put on a persona. So, uh, you want to come in again there, Jeff? A little the point about it being kind of a liberating experience is, is, is very interesting. Um, have you ever been told you can't talk about that? You can't say that? That, that really annoyed That always annoyed me. Like I, I, I kind of felt duty bound just to resist the bullying that's implied there, the kind of whole the idea that you, you're going to be intellectually flattened by another human being. I always felt obligated when someone said you, 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 can't, you can't say that to say, well, I, I just did. Let, let me say it again. What gives me saying it? Oh, it, it transpires I can say that. Let's have a discussion about it. This didn't go down very well, but it helps to recall. So one of the things is learning not to be afraid of the subject matter. That, that's really liberating. Um, Another thing about the column is we'll talk, we'll talk to anybody about anything. Um, one, of the, one of the early stories from, from Brian Gerrish is about, one, one of them is about a talk he gave to uh, the British National Party, and another one is about a talk he gave to Birmingham Central Mosque. 
right? And, and the, the issue is the, not only the range of people, but actually the similarity. Because both were seeing the same thing, but they were perceiving it differently. Right? So one group was perceiving it as an attack on them as a group, and then the other group was perceiving it as an attack on them as a group. Uh, when Brian was talking about some of the strange things uh, that was happening in the Common Purpose, the political charity that operates kind of underground networks across councils and uh, other uh, you know, government organisations, and he was explaining to the people in Birmingham Central Mosque how this operated, they were stunned and they said, we thought it was just us. We thought they were doing this to us because we're Muslim or Asians. No, 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 no. This is happening to you know, the, the, the indigenous population. This is happening all across the board. And this is one of the realizations that you've got certain things that you can rely on. Honesty, truth, right? Faith. Um, you've got people who have some some moral framework that they're willing to stand on. And it always doesn't matter which one, because if they've got something, they will make a stand. And you can get these people talking, and when you do, you find that they've got an awful lot in common. And you can start to unpick what's being done. And this is, this is what the column does. We're in the business of analyzing corruption, right? Now the good news is, there's plenty of corruption to analyze, right? So we, we have a lot of material to work with. And also, there aren't many people in the field, right? Because uh, one, of the, one of the facets of corruption, and it was really obvious during COVID, is all the mainstream media became government owned. Right? I mean, they all sang this same song. And it was morning, noon, and night. It was fear, 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 fear. You're all going to die. You're going to kill Granny. Mask up, vax up. Don't go out. Don't walk the dog. Can't, can't go hill walking. Will arrest you. Everything was fear, and it was very interesting seeing how it was done. Because not only did they, did they own the BBC, right? We get that. They own the BBC. Uh, but you've got all this independent media, right? These are commercial concerns. They shut down the economy, but there was massive advertising, massive advertising going in in all the press. And it was all government advertising and it was all to do with COVID. Now, they, un they don't need to sit down to edit with editors and explain, if you take a different view, we bye bye to the advertising revenue, and by the way, we'll shut down the rest of the economy, so that's not just some of your revenue, that's your revenue. That's the difference between survival and not. So, do you want to have a newspaper? Well, this is the line you've got to pick. And, and I, I think that I think now the, the mainstream is so attuned to that, it doesn't need to be explicitly stated. They just understand that if you want to play, you have to stay on the script. So it was really obvious that the corruption had got to the media. So they're not putting out much information about corruption. Now occasionally they'll do one or two, and, and, and we try and applaud them when they do. And there was one in the BBC the other night uh, about uh, people with learning difficulties and autism spending decades in Carstairs. There's no purpose for them being in Carstairs, there's no reason for them to be in Carstairs, 
but they're income stairs anyway. And because of the action of the Mental Health Act, they become essentially wards of the state. So their own family have no authority over their lives. So they, are, they become captured by the state. And of course, with that comes a lot of government money and there's lots of vested interests. So you get corruption. So I mean, good on the BBC for doing that, but they, they wouldn't do many other things. They wouldn't talk about, well, anything more script on COVID. They would talk about adverse vaccine reactions. They would talk about the lack of benefit of the vaccines. They would talk about the, the relative low threat that the, 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 the disease always represented. They would talk about the strange things that were happening in care homes. They, they wouldn't go to any of these areas. And they certainly wouldn't talk about the spikes in all-cause mortality that, for, that followed every introduction of a vaccine. So the, the, the corruption was such that they just wouldn't talk about these things. So from the UK Commons point of view, this allows us not exactly a, a, a clear pitch, because there's other people out there doing excellent work, but it gives us um, a big space in which to operate, because there's no shortage of corruption. Rule number one, put in UK column, rule number one, if you can think of it, they are up to it. Right? That's a good rule. Um, and then, so what we do is we analyse corruption, and then the next thing we do is when we explain it, we try to make it clear, and we try to make it understandable. And this can be difficult because there's a few there's a few awkward areas. Why do so many people go along with it? That that one's always troubled me. Right? Why do they go along with it? And for the most part, it's weakness. It's not actually evil exactly. It's just, I'd like an easy life, right? So if someone was leading from the front and saying, righteousness, we are going to do the right thing, they would go, okay. Right? And if someone is saying, no, that's what we're going to do is we're going to destroy society and remake it in, in, a, in a Marxist way. We're going to destroy society by uh, um, a, a concerted attack on the family, oh, and by the way, we're not going to allow you to have men and women anymore. They go, okay. <laughs> right, this is the problem, it's, it's, the, it's the weak bit in the middle. And this came out in um, Kenny Bainbrook, who was standing for the Tory leadership um, contest. He got fourth. I, I was surprised, because I, I quite like Kenny Bainbrook, and I thought anyone I quite like will get like, they'll wear But she got fourth, so she obviously wasn't allowed to win. Um, even though she would have won had it gone to a vote of the members. So Kenny Bateman was talking about uh, her investigation of the Tavistock Clinic, the gender clinic in, in London. And her own uh, staff, the civil servants, were preventing her from investigating. So there was people who were damaged, people whose lives had been destroyed. There was one lassie who had gone, she'd been put on puberty block at the age of 16 or something, right? She'd, she'd been given um, late teens, early twenties, a double mastectomy. She'd been, she'd been told to go out and try to live the life of a man. She'd realised in her twenties that actually all it was was a teenager with some problems and I needed someone to talk to. I needed a friend, I needed some counselling. And look what they've done to me. And she started to speak out, she actually sued them and won, she won them. 
that she was being prevented from speaking to the minister responsible by the civil servants. And the minister responsible was eager to hear the story, but was struggling to actually get through the bureaucracy. And she said there was three types of there was three types of civil servants. Right? One, there was the activists who were pushing this agenda. And they were quite small in number, but very, very dedicated. And this is this is Stonewall type folk, this is this is all the, the, the alphabet people, the activists who, who are out there. And if you dig deep, they're out there to destroy society. And there's nothing they've, had, there's nothing they've ever met that they don't want to destroy. And there's no end to it. And then in the middle, there's a huge mass who just want an easy life. And they'll just do whatever's easiest. And so then there's a few, a few who are excellent. And that's what she found. And I thought that was really telling. So we try and explain not only what the corruption is, but where it comes from. And when we dig down and we look at what the history is, and who's made the decisions, and what their ideologies and beliefs are, and it starts to make some sense. But it's dealing with that soft, mushy, rubbishy bit that's now in our society, and it's huge. The people who just won't make a stand. And dealing with that, I think, our role is, is helping and encouraging all of you to go to them and say, you want an easy life? Not that way. I'm here to make sure if you go that way, you don't get an easy life. Because what are they going to do? Right? They're going to fold like a pack of cards. So the amount of power that you all have to make change and to, and to hold people to account is, is enormous. And I think, I think a big part of our role is just encouraging people to stand up, speak their mind, not get intimidated by, oh, you're a bigot. No, I'm not a bigot. Right? And the reason that you're saying this is in order to silence me. But in fact, what I'm saying is what the vast majority of this country has believed for maybe 2,000 years. So before we throw it all out, let's examine where the new ideas come from. And here's the answer. And all of a sudden, the oh, you're a bigot charge is, 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 it looks the ridiculous attempt to silence you that it is. So if we can encourage people to do that sort of pushback, um, we'll have done our job. We're encouraging people, in other words, to use their mouths. Right? They have to digest what we present to them. Um, I saw uh, a very proud university graduate criticising us recently on social media uh, of the kind that's now called a midwit, you know, halfway between dimwit and actually <laughs> And this lady, in very pompous words that she learned in the postgraduate course, was saying, it took me a jolly long time to work out why you take on this fake news, because it looks so much like a good presentation. And she said, only when you really bother to follow all the links and charts and the graphs that they put out, do you realise that this is to their own analysis. Uh, and of course, to the original documents. You know. But of course, she has been trained to uh, believe that the only kind of knowledge that reaches you, I'm going to use some posh words maybe, the only valid epistemology, the only valid source of knowledge is 
someone says studies have found that, right? The big man said, we recently interviewed, and we've got a lot of flack for it, we're going to be discussing that while I'm up here with David and recording that discussion. We uh, interviewed one of the best Islamic teachers of the current age, uh, a very peaceful and wise man, Sheikh Imran Hussein, who has quite a following in Glasgow, we found out. Anyway, Hussein puts it very poetically in his Islamic way. You have to look with both eyes, and Antichrist is blind in one eye, that's an Islamic tradition. And he went further and explained that the right eye, the one in which, uh, out of which the Antichrist does see, is the eye of uh, externally acquired knowledge. Right? That's the news headlines coming to you. Studies show, experts say. Here it is uh, in, in, a, in a sealed package of knowledge, is another phrase that we use. And he said Antichrist is blind in his left eye. He has no deductive reasoning. His inductive reasoning input is there but not deductive reasoning. And that, I think, is at root why a lot of people, sometimes in that very fancy and haughty way, say that uh, they, they cannot accept what we are presenting, because it's, it does not compute. It requires people to use their own consciences, right? Their heads and their gut instinct. Uh, and this is, this is a, you know, something that's become promoted, I think, in society, actually, to, to do both of those things. If you break that connection, if, if you are doing what you are told from external sources, what well, David just presented, that leads to weakness. But weakness, I think, is, is perhaps too tame a word for the results, because weakness, as Hannah Arendt and other books that you've read have said, can actually lead people to commit outright evil against their nearest and dearest. And that's why we are primarily attempting to shock using, you know, sometimes a, a very calm, usually a calm presentation, but we're still attempting to shock people into pulling away from that kind of evil. Exodus 23 says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. That's the first time in world history that the um, position was laid down, uh, that it's not enough to say everyone else is doing it. Uh, for example, I recently spoke to a viewer uh, who said that uh, his uh, other half had decided he needed a COVID jab and the thing to do would be to collude with a nurse to get him injected in his sleep. <laughs> that is not from a bad person. That is from a good person whose head was full of experts say and studies show and we must all be doing the same thing. Thank God the partnership survived and I think is in a better position now than what I can discern. But that, that is the kind of extremity that we get to. And when we know that that's multiplied by many examples, it's no longer an option for us just to leave the field to those who say, well, we're better qualified with the BBC with a five billion pound budget. We could research a thousand times as much information as you can. You know, it, some things you just get by deducing. And then you put it out there. You know, and you get, you get scored. I, I think it's fair to say that trolling is already on the way, isn't it, David? We do get trolls, for sure. You know, but the, the quality and quantity of trolling, I think, is actually and the, uh, the uh, amount of com communication that we get saying, not just you've kept us sane, which was through COVID, but you're showing us a way forward, or you're helping us work out our own way forward, is actually increasing. Right? So if you want to take stock of where the truth movement, the truth community is, is at in its broadest sense, I think it's maturing now. And I think you can see that reflected in our own output. Brian Gerrish is very keen, for example, on promoting others' good work in the free media and as David has already said. 
when individuals uh, in the broadsheets or in the BBC actually tell the truth, when an MP occasionally stands up. I was going to say an MSP, but that's rather rare, and <laughs> said something that came out of their own minds. Right? Um, then we commend them. And they, they get the shock of their lives because they get, you know, after a couple of thousands of uh, letters and emails saying you did the right thing. And of course, that's far more uh, significant to them than the hate they'll get, or the campaigns, or the coordinated campaigns. And so we, we do actually commend individuals when they do the right thing. And that's, Brian Gerrish has been very keen to push recently, uh, particularly with reporting on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, if we see sources, uh, particularly one man bands, that are in a very modest way putting out information and it's not getting the coverage it needs. Often that's because they don't provide as much razzmatazz as some of the people in the in the free media, or should we say in the in the, the semi-official media such as TV News. We will promote such people, and they will start talking to each other. So we have a networking role as well, not just to find individuals who meet each other at events like this, but even between people who are saying roughly the same thing as us, or certainly have the first the same first principles as us. Um, that that actually helps us to expand our reach. We don't feel that we're competing in any way with other people. Where do you take it from here? Uh, well, I think, I think at this point we should open it up to, to all of you. Now, it's always a bit difficult as to who's going to have the first question, but it is ask us anything. Um, is that a volunteer? journalism and mainstream media and all these kind of things. 
production and the all that kind of thing. We got uh, we got onto the mainstream media, we got onto the BBC with their party political broadcast. Uh, but I don't know Scotland, 
and you're not allowed to work for the Scottish Government, and you're not allowed to teach school children if you think that, that freedom is a good thing in Scotland. So the people who are willing to take the risk are worth listening to. And what else? There's probably a third one. Can you, can you provide a third thing you look for? We look for stability of character. That strikes me again and again and again. There's actually no shortage of courageous people around. Some of them are completely wrong-headed. Some of them are at the heat. But uh, that is just you know, part and parcel of dealing with people. And sometimes you only discover that they're at the heat after a year of talking to them. Fair enough, you might have got a lot wider in the process. Um, the narrow, the pity point, is within that wider universe of people who have something to say, who can express themselves who've done some thinking or learning or experiencing in life, do they actually have a mature character? Right? Because Dai asked about how do we bring, well, I'm not caricaturing, but the thought behind Dai's question was groups. Right? You enable these groups that are suddenly visible in the community. Actually, you can't really have unity between groups on a fundamental level. As David already hinted, you can have unity between individuals. It may be 70% of the individuals who unite under a particular banner that you can see eye to eye with, to have unity with, but it's never going to be all of them because you're always going to have some fellow travellers. Right? You get common house among our paid members. Some people who are alone for the love. Right? Some who are alone because they are lonely. We have compassion on them because there's a you know, huge number of lonely people in society for whom our forums provide some of the, 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 you know, the, the, the precious little meaning that they can find. Fair enough, you cut them some slack. But there's clearly people in all of the groups and platforms like UK Column who are treating the uh, broadcasts or, or efforts as infotainment. And you can see that in the kind of increasingly desperate uh, calls for attention that they get. You know, talk to me, if not your control opposition. You know, that kind of thing. And they've actually pressed the nuclear button by calling us secret agents of a wicked government as a kind of opening gambit to see whether we'd like to have a cup of tea with them. <laughs> so you, you, you've got to use some discernment there. And actually, you know, what David is mainly getting at is that there's a com com constant iterative feedback, I suppose he would say as an engineer, because he's always challenging himself in his work as an engineer more than many other professions as to how I make the right assumptions, if not building the important right? So the, the feedback that we have every day is, are we still standing on the truth? Did we say anything in the last news cycle that turned out to be 2% wrong? If so, we have a duty to ourselves as alone to the audience to correct it. No, rather mercilessly. If we don't do that, we're going to be off course. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be singing from the same hymn sheet as everyone would have on, because as we've mentioned, we'll talk to ethno-nationalists, we'll talk to Muslim fundamentalists, we'll talk to anyone. In fact, these people actually are kind of horseshoe. They're, they're at the four truth ends, the conscientious end of the, the horseshoe. And the problem is actually up there in the, in the radical centre, where people will say or do anything to keep in power and, and comfort. Right? So the basis of unity can't be forced. Yeah, so, so unity in truth we go for, but unity in organisational terms is more of a danger than it is a benefit. If evil captures the centre, it captures everything. Um, and also, one of our strengths is the fact that all these little groups keep popping up, because um, the state has got to keep slapping everyone down. 
And every time they knock someone down, someone else pops back up. Um, they do get, if the attack remains from one direction, they'll eventually get organised. Like my intro into this was, uh, was fighting for a man called Robert Green. Robert Green was campaigning for Holly Gregg, who was abused by Peter Powell in Aberdeen. In order to cover that up, the Scottish Government had an allocated person, and whatever branch of the Scottish Government be asked a question of, it went to the same human being. And this was to stop, because if we asked police a question, and we asked social worker a question and the government department a question, and we get three different answers, you get information about where the lies are. So they actually directed it to one human being to coordinate the answer, to stop the inconsistencies coming out. So um, the, the fact that we were going on one line, they eventually got some defences built. We then moved and we got a different line of attack through Audit Scotland because a huge amount of money had been given to Dame Alicia Angelini to sue Robert Green, and we wanted to know who authorised this and what the process was that authorised it. And that was a frightening story when we got to the bottom of it, which took a while. And all of a sudden, we were talking to different people. One of them was Leslie Evans, until recently the head of the Scottish Civil Service and made famous for the Salmon case. But Unbelievably then. I, I mean, just a gift. And every time she gave us a letter, she was leaking information all over the place. We couldn't believe her luck. And eventually she wrote to us and said, I have been instructed not to write to you. Did you say that the head of the civil service had been given an instruction by somebody? Yes. Who would that be then? Yeah. Actually, it's a good question. I don't know. The implication was someone with a brain cell, but I, I, don't, I don't actually know the identity. But she was instructed, so there you go. Um, incidentally, the, the, the background on how Leslie, uh, how uh, Dame Angelini got government money to sue Robert Green, we asked this question and it went through Audit Scotland, and eventually the reply came. Um, the process is in the ministerial code. So we looked up the ministerial code and it wasn't there. It's not there. Also, our mistake, it's in the Westminster ministerial code, but we're using that. So we got a hold of that and we looked it up and it wasn't there. It's not there. Sorry, our mistake, it's in the conditions of contract for government employees in Scotland. And we looked that one up and it was there. And what it says is, and this applies as far as we can tell to every government employee in Scotland, that any government employee or former government employee who becomes involved in any civil or criminal case where in the opinion of the government that's in the best interest of the government, not the people, not justice, none of those things, the government, that the government takes on that case and runs that case, the government will do so. So if you're suing a civil servant, you could, and they don't tell you, you could be financially up against Her Majesty's taxpayer. You wonder, why do they get so many really good lawyers? 
there's no money's no object. And they don't tell you. And you're actually fighting the, the government and, and you don't know. Now that was a shock, but you know, you find out things when you push and you ask awful you ask awful questions. So the, and the final thing about unity, the the distributed network that we have of groups fighting, it helps us to communicate, it really does help us to communicate, but the fact that it's a distributed network makes it much, much harder because one group will find a bit of success and if they shout about it, other people can then, well, we'll do that too. And all of a sudden it's exploited much more rapidly and effectively than it would otherwise be. There was a, there was a thing called Gamergate, if anyone knows about that, that, that exploited this. And there's a book written about it called SJWs Always Lie, written by a guy called Vox Day. So if you want to understand how these distributed networks are actually better than a unified one, that's the wee book to read. It's quite slim and it's very entertaining. So, I hope that answers the question. Next question, sir. Do you want, do you want to come up and? Thank you. My name is Theo Holton. I live in South Glasgow and so um, I've been watching the UK column for a year avidly. It's an honour to be in your presence. Thank you for your work. Um, my, my question is, um, well, um, some of us see a risk that the um, representative democracy with party whips is controlled democracy, controlled opposition, um, that the, you know, just takes, uh, you know, blackmail material or bribery or some kind of corruption of the leaders of these parties in order to con control the government, whichever colour of government it is. Um, and um, my question is, don't you think the solution to this is has to be direct democracy. And, um, well, I would um, say a second thing, that it, it, has, it has to be, um, in my opinion, open database democracy. And a lot of people have a problem with that because it means your privacy on the vote is gone. So first of all, uh, direct democracy, we all get to vote, if we wish, on any bill, maybe once a month, so as, you, know, you have the time to vote and so on do it online, maybe a, a phone menu system and so forth. Direct democracy. It can't be controlled by bribery or threats. The second aspect, open democracy, open database democracy means that you know we can't have uh, we can we can eliminate the risk of ballot stuffing. We can eliminate the risk of false voters. You may have seen the documentary from the US uh, 2000 Mules. Um, you know, ballot stopping apparently. Um, you know, so um, what, what do you think about the, you know, are we, are we in the end talking about how, you know, are we in the end asking for democracy? I mean, some people don't want democracy, but I mean, don't we want democracy? It, so, so, so that the government serves the people. You know, this is a common theme of some of your discussions, I think, that the, the government are there to serve the people and not. Not that the people should be slaves. Doesn't this then imply that we need a direct democracy um, and, and, and uh, open database? Thank you. Right. Thank you very much, Alex. We'd like to start off on that. Thank you.
anthology recently, which you'll find on ukcolumn.org, and I'm on the top menu bar for the series, is called The Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. And many people see that, I'm not suggesting in particular, people see that and think, oh, constitutional politics, not interested, right? But do please have a listen through it. We have actually dedicated two episodes, I think we had a split episode five into two, didn't we? Covering the question of what is democracy, is it actually a desideratum, you know, is it the highest good that we, we want to strive for? And we have to come to the radical conclusion that it isn't. And I remember when I was writing the teaser, the subtitle that is visible when you share the link on social media or when you find it on the front page of the website, I worded one of them as, democracy means that the people get what they want. What if they are induced to want what they can't have, right? I, I submit, and I think David is about to endorse what I say, but I'm not putting words in his mouth, that we were better ruled and were given more of what we really wanted and needed before democracy was a buzzword than we have been since. And if you want to get into some of the weeds of that, it's about, about time preference and the quality, the caliber of people who serve us. Right? They, if they give their lives to it and if they have trained for it and are um, dedicated to it in that sense, they are less corruptible than people who stand up and say, I will give you what you want. Because absolutely right, Theo, which parties is an evil that we've had for about 125-130 years now. Um, and it always leads to, uh, well, one Dutch academic, Thierry Andrika, has called it kakistocracy, ruled by Turks, right? Um, <laughs> because they always float to the top, right? <laughs> of course. So you've got, instead of aristocracy, ruled by the best, allegedly, you've got ruled by the worst. And even if you ban parties, which we should, because neither the Scots nor the English Constitution was based on the presumption of parties, but of people acting on their oath of office to the individuals that, that put them there, you're still going to get intrigue. You know, you're still, the continent just call it party discipline. It sounds a bit better than, than party whipping. Um, so, I know that many people use democracy in a very, very positive way, such as all the good things and the right things that you're always talking about. I'm just suggesting maybe democracy is not the best word for that, even if it's the most convenient one uh, that we've heard. Do you want to take it from there? Yes, I mean, it was a fascinating discussion on democracy, and it did go on and on. We, could, we actually had to just say, well, we've got to stop now, because it's, it's one of those words that is used to disarm people. Well, this seems to be really, a really bad idea. Oh, democracy. Can't be, can't be gainsaid. Well, yes, it can. Um, so there's, there's two, there's two things I'd recommend that you have a look at. One is um, Hans Hermann Hoppe's book called Democracy: The God That Failed, and it analyzes why democracy is a really bad idea. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a real hoot of a read because it describes the nature of politicians and how they're selected on their ability to lie and cheat and and it's, it, as you read it, it just, it, it's, it's just so familiar. So, yes, I recognise this, this is, this is the world I live in. But that's representative of Yeah, yes, yes. And, and, uh, and he, he compares it to princely rule. And says, not that princely rule is great, but it's actually better. Now, one of the issues about that is, if you look at when we did have a monarch making much more of the decisions, the degree to which they were swayed by public opinion is quite remarkable. 
and the degree to which the democracy, representative democracy, I grant you, is not swayed by public opinion is equally remarkable. We had our economy based very largely on slavery abroad and a triangle of trade around the Atlantic, and a whole lot of people, mostly Methodists and English churches, said this is wrong and started agitating and they won the argument. Right? They won the argument to say, we are all human beings, we are all made in the image of God and we all deserve a certain base level of compassion and dignity based on our humanity. And you cannot say that someone is less than you because of their legal status or the colour of skin or they came from a certain part of Africa. And they won the argument. And they won the argument in, in, the, in the field of public opinion. And the state, which at that point was very largely the king and, and those around him, changed the law and not only made it illegal, but, but sent the Royal Navy out to stop it at huge expense to the country, both to buy the slaves out of, out of bondage and, and then to fund the West Africa squadron, at huge expense in blood because it's a malarial coast they were patrolling and they lost a lot of lives. And they did it because public opinion says, we're not having this. And it, it was able to recognize that public opinion. Fast forward to Tony Blair, Nahabu. Fast forward to Tony Blair. Tony said there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Tony said, we are standing with George Bush. All the way with George Bush, we are going to put the army into Iraq and we are going to find these weapons of mass destruction. And we're going to stop Saddam Hussein because he's literally Hitler. And he could, he, could, he could fire weapons at us and they could be here in 45 minutes and all the rest. Now, millions of people went out in London and said, no, we do not want a war. This, this, this story is rubbish. We don't want a war. And the public was, was wholeheartedly against it. And they, despite the control of the press, the state lost the argument. There was no smoking gun. A smoking gun could be the shape of a mushroom cloud. Remember that one? What a, what a genius bit of PR to spin that was. Well, they lost the argument, but they still took our army to Iraq and, and many people died, right? Yes, exa exactly my point. So, so the, the democratic system didn't actually, was less responsive to public opinion. Now, the, than the principally rule. So Hans Hermann Hoppers one book. The other thing is a paper from the 30s um, written by H.L. Mencken and it was called Isaiah's Job and it talked about the, the difference between the masses of men and the remnant. And the interesting thing is it quoted scripture and it quoted Roman generals and it quoted people through all history seeing this same thing. There's a difference between the masses of men and the remnant. And it's only the remnant that you can actually hope for very much from. And when everything falls apart, the remnant's the bit that will stand up and will build everything back up again. And the masses of men, not so good. 
So if you build a system that is based on the masses of men, I think you've got a fundamental problem because the fundamental problem is this, it's the evil in the human heart. And it's the, it's the remnant, it's the, it's the remnant of right thinking and well-doing that exists in this country, and exists in every country, that you've got to try and encourage. And you've got to try and liberate. And the more you put, this is where centralization and unity is a problem, the more you put authority into one place, when evil captures that one place, and it will, you've got a big problem. So what you want is diverse networks, you want people doing good things, and, you, and when they do good things, other people who are partly remnant will stand up and say, I like that, well done, I'll come and help you. And that way, the, the righteousness, if you want to use an old-fashioned word, doesn't get extinguished, it keeps popping up. And they can do, in the case of ending slavery, remarkable things. So we have to break for our drinks downstairs, but I think Theo deserves a more detailed answer on the points he specifically gave about direct democracy. Okay? Then for a start, there's different shades of what people mean by that. There's technical terms used like sortition, where you pick people at random from the voter pool. How we define the voter pool, by the way, is another matter. It's now a great big unsayable uh, to say that certain people, such as net tax recipients, are always going to vote themselves to other people's money. Right? Especially in Scotland, that draws breaths in them. Are you saying that people on benefits shouldn't vote? Well, I'm not saying it that straight out, but you actually have to bear that in mind. You know, and the SP, of course, we know it's lowering the voting age, some of the other devolved administrations, because that's more captive votes, and at the other end, dispatching, not directly, of course, not by execution, but making sure that the old conservative voters are out of the way, right? So, this is all part of the big mass of it. People who advocate, in general terms, direct democracy are often some of the most compassionate and clear-minded people. You have that in Theo's question. I think with respect, they have, well, the one thing they haven't considered enough is just how banal we can be with ourselves. How much we can kid ourselves on that uh, we are not corruptible as a group. And, uh, you know, if it's a voting system where I press a button and say, this month, I don't want that act to be law anymore. I want this to be gone. You can easily be induced change your mind. You know, we have ups and downs in matters trivial and severe. <clears throat> and what David don't mind is that actually we are steered by seeing our peers, even people who are younger, less experienced, poorer, worse educated than ourselves, making a stand at cost, as described earlier, and we say, yes, this person is morally superior to me, at least on this point. I'm going to take a lead from this person. Okay? So deciding what we want is not a matter of how I feel today. It's a matter of seeing what ideas actually stand up to scrutiny. Uh, and with that, I think we'd probably better go down for a drink. Yes, are you ready for a cup of tea? <laughs> yes. Right, let's <laughs> if, if, if we could be back up, we'll restart at nine, and, and uh, we'll be down to have a chat with you all, and uh, I hope you enjoy your coffee.